classes and she let me know uh, yesterday that she has another commitment on Wednesday nights that uh, will keep her from being with us for at least a couple of weeks, five weeks maybe. But she's going to be listening. So, hi Julie. Hi Julie. There you hi, go. Hi Julie. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we are we are with her and in spirit and she'll be with us a little, uh, a little later on during the month. She, she'd probably be here when the snow finally flies or something. <laughs> so, I gave you a study guide and I thought that before we start looking at the material, and partly because I don't want to get far into the book in case you should decide to pick up a copy of it. It's uh, not an expensive book, and it's you know not a big book, it's, but it might be really helpful to you. I searched for a long time during the off season, looking for a book about Islam that would be geared towards Christians, and that would be informative in a way that we need to be informed, but also equip us to respond to Islam in a Christian way. And this book seems to meet that need pretty well. And so that's why I would recommend that you pick it up, and I think you'd find it helpful. Um, not because we are going to advocate aggressively trying to convert Islamic people to Christianity, but because as we encounter the Islamic people in our lives, and, and, uh, and I suspect that in certain working environments that's very common <coughs> here in Jasper, because it really just kind of depends on the kind of work you do in a small town. but but. People who, who uh, worship Islam or, or practice Islam are around everywhere. And, and it just isn't that unusual to go to Walmart in any town in America and see somebody in a hijab or whatever. It's just, it is what it is. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad, evil thing. It just means that as Christians, we are obliged to live according to Christ's precepts and then try to demonstrate why that's pretty good for everybody. And so. We do have a, a call to witness for Christ. And that's kind of the gist of where we're going for this part of it. There's going to be just a tiny bit of review, but I thought the first thing we should do is a little quick Bible study. I have outlined, uh, on the outline I have given you six verses. I wonder if someone would take one of the, who would take number one on the list? Just raise your hand. Okay, George, two. Connie, got it. Three. I'll take three. Okay. I need four, five, and six. Who will read number four? I'll do four. Okay. I'll do five. Number five? Six. Doreen will do six. Thank you very much. Let's just take them in order. When you find them, just go ahead and read it out. Uh, mine is from NIV, Psalms 37, verse 30. The mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks what is just. This is Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Um, Proverbs 3, 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And Proverbs 4, 6 and 7. Don't turn your back on wisdom, for... She will protect you, love her, and she will guard you. Getting wisdom is the most important thing you can do. And whatever else you do, get good judgment. Proverbs 13, verse 1. A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but 
a mocker he does not listen to rebuke and Ecclesiastes 2.26 for to the one who pleases him God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God this also is vanity and, stri and a striving after wind thank you all very much uh, I chose those passages for us to read to start because when you're dealing with topics that are surrounded by misunderstanding and controversy, you got to pray for God's wisdom. So whether we're talking about the future of the United Methodist Church or whether we're talking about the relationship between Christians, Jews, and people of Islam in this country and in this time in our history, you got to approach it with wisdom, and you got to ask God for wisdom. That's the only source of true wisdom, and uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit in the moment and the wisdom of God in the long view, hopefully you can interpret your life and your encounters in a way that is informed by God's wisdom, and, and that's kind of what we're shooting for here in the class. So by way of review, and I didn't put this on the worksheet, but just... In a nutshell, if you were here for the first semester part of our class, did you, do you recall a couple of fundamental things? And, and by the way, um, you know, I didn't even introduce the Millers. I think you're the only ones that haven't been here before. I don't know if you all know them or not. This is Meredith and Ted Miller. And uh, we have study guides from all the previous classes, and I can get you copies. They're right here in that gray book if you want Okay. Thank so you. just be aware that if you guys have missed one, you know, you're welcome to my master copies. Okay, and, and of course they're also online and I have them on a, a Google folder with the Wednesday Night Bible Study where you can get them that way. So try to make it as easily accessible as possible. So so basically, where where do you think it all began based on last semester? What, where did, did in, in a few words, what where did this relationship uh, these two people groups start. Donna. Ishmael and Isaac. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember a couple of fundamental, fundamental? That was my new word. Do you remember a couple of fundamental characteristics that were noticeably different about those two people? Start with the obvious. One was a biological son, and well, they're both biological sons. Yeah. One of them of the father. Yeah, of the father. One was of the mother, and one was of the concubine. Mm -hmm. And where did the concubine originate from? Egypt. Egypt. Right. Pharaoh's house. Right. And Sarah was the one that was promised to have the child. And she eventually did. So one is the child of the promise, or the covenant with Abraham, and the other one is the child of the relationship between Abraham and his Egyptian maidservant. Okay? So there's the first definitive characteristic. What are some of the personality traits that you remember from Isaac and Ishmael? Wise as the donkey, or wild as the donkey. Yep. I think one. Which one? Ishmael. Yeah. 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 And uh, Ishmael was a bit of a bully. He yeah. was. Mocker. <coughs> he was a little yeah. crude. 
I mean, what we determined, I, and I, I was just talking to my wife about this the other day, because one of the things that we we learned through Bible study and, and a little bit of, of you know, Mishnah and, 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 uh, and biblical, rabbinical study, what we, what we realized was is that, that what, when Sarah says, A, I want him out of here and take his mother too, what she was saying was is he is exposing my baby to some really nasty stuff. It, it was everything from dirty jokes to pornography to, you know, I mean, just imagine your innocent little child running with a kid in the neighborhood who is just uninhibited, we'll say. <laughs> you know, how would you react? Well, so you could say that Sarah was a very good mom, and Abraham was kind of like, eh, they're boys, boys do what boys do, but, but the age difference between Ishmael and Isaac would have made, uh, at the time that Isaac's, or at the time that Sarah wanted I, uh, Ishmael and his mom out, uh, Ishmael was probably 21, 22 years old, and Isaac's just this teenager, like 12, 13, 14 years old. And, you know, there's a reason you don't want your girls going out with older boys when they're teenagers. There's a reason you don't want your kids, your boys hanging out with older boys and so forth, because, you know, we all know we're all older enough, you know, old enough that we, we know why that's a bad idea, and Sarah is the one that said, this has got to stop. What we know about Isaac is that he, uh, as a young adult, because you have to look at the timelines, willingly went to be sacrificed. He knew what he was doing, but his faith in God was like his father's, and so for faith, of his, for faith in his father and faith in God, he said, all right, if this is what God wants, then so be it. And so it tells you a little bit about his character. He's really committed to the Lord God, the, the, the one God. And uh, then, then as time passes, we have Isaac's children. And uh, Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. And what are the things you remember that were kind of different between Jacob and Esau? Jacob was a mama's boy. Jacob was a mama's boy. Yeah. Esau was daddy's boy, and he was the hunter. Yeah, he, he was kind of a wild child, too. Yeah. We looked a little bit at the names of the various descendants of Jacob and Esau, and what we realized was that Esau's descendants, their names all meant things like, you know, he who breaks rocks over his head and and the big brute. And, you know, their names meant things like that. I'm exaggerating to make the point. But, you know, all of their names were, were just like, you know, from the, from the other side of the tracks, so to speak. You know, when I lived in Sullivan for a little while, I learned that there really is such thing as the other side of the tracks. They were not far from there, so they know what I'm talking about. It, it was a real thing in, in that town anyway, and it was in, in, in a lot of towns once upon a time. <laughs> but um, when, uh, when Jacob comes along, you know, well, he's kind of a schemer and a character himself, and his mom certainly encouraged him. But the covenant goes to Jacob. And then as you progress through your learning in the last <coughs> sessions, you know, what were some of the key points that you remember that differentiated the line of the covenant, which is Israel, and the line that came basically from Ishmael 
And what are some of the things you remember? Well, Ishmael led into the Arabs. Right. We looked at a map. Do you remember that? That was like one of the last classes we did before some of us went to where the map is. And we, we looked, and, and sure enough, all the people <coughs> that descended from Ishmael tend to congregate in a certain area, which would today be southern Israel around Gaza and, and uh, parts of Arabia, parts of Egypt. So, so they tend to concentrate in those areas of geography. And so we noted that that was interesting because that's still kind of the heart of Islam, even today. That's kind of the ground zero for Islam, you know. Um, second holiest site is the, the Temple Mount, or the, the Dome of the Rock, but the first holiest site is Mecca. And uh, so look at the geography, because the, the Dome of the Rock marks where it's believed that Abraham almost <coughs> sacrificed Isaac. And so it becomes the central location in all of Christian history, but it's also a very important location for Islam because Abraham is a patriarch of theirs. But from that point, everything in Islam goes south, and everything from Israel seems to kind of go in all the other directions, which, you know, some of that's just anecdotal, but, I mean, it's, it, it can't be denied that there are interesting correlations. So... So is there anything else you want to talk about in way of review? Anything that really stands out? Some of you I know took a lot of notes. Is there anything you wrote down that you just like drew a circle around? Or, you know, before we move on, is there anything that to, to revisit from a while back? To the listeners at home, people are searching their notes right now. Yeah. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> if you have never attended one of my classes, one of the things that you will probably be in shock and awe of is my incredible wit. <laughs> Exuberance. Jokes. <laughs> I tell you what I got for Christmas. No. Yeah. I, yeah, I got I got the goat. I know when they bought it. And it wasn't because I'm the greatest of all time. <laughs> I know when they bought it. It was their way to remind me that all the jokes I made on the bus over there that were answering with bad. Okay. Here we go. So the guide to answering Islam, what every Christian needs to know about Islam and the rise of racial, radical, excuse me, Islam by Daniel Janicek is the book that I'm referencing References are down there. Um, gosh, I thought I gave you the ISBN number, but I don't see it now. But you won't have any trouble finding it on Amazon with the title and the author's name. Um, so Islam. The uh, and, and honestly, because you don't have the book yet, I just took some of the answers or some of the questions from the back of this first chapter and put them in here, and I will try to answer them for you tonight because I got the book. It's like when I do a wedding, you know, they all get worried about this, that, and the other thing, and I just hold the book up and they say, I got the book. <laughs> We're okay as long as I got the book. You just show up and stand where I tell you to. And it works every time. Um, so first thing I want you to do, and you can do this, you, you people with smartphones and computers and things, I want you to look up this word that's on your, your notes, Jahiliyah, 
don't know when when you put two Y's together, does that sound like yeah or yeah? I don't know. Jahili yeah. I know that when we were when I was trying to practice some Arabic with some people in Jerusalem, I kept saying I was sure I was saying exactly the same thing they were saying, but they kept correcting me, and it was all about where I placed the. <laughs> I'm serious. You were there. <coughs> I, you know, I really love trying to learn other people's languages, but it's funny how the nuances are in the little subtle things like, like that. I, the, the good morning in Arabic is sabah akher. And every time I said sabah akher, the person would always look at me, smile, and say, no, sabah akher. And I was like, I don't understand. I went, and you went, and somehow it's not no, the same No, it's a big place. difference, man. Um, I don't know, but they'll teach me on my next trip. It's like I'm one sure. has more of a seat to it. Um, yeah. Anybody find it? What'd yep. you find, Nancy? It says, just, oh, <laughs> <laughs> go for it. <laughs> it's an is Islamic concept referring to the period of time and state of affairs in Arabia before the advent of Islam in 610 CE. It is often translated as the age of ignorance, the term Jahiliya is derived from the verbal root Jahala, to be ignorant or stupid, to act stupidly. Okay. Did you find anything different, or is that about the same thing? Yeah, same, okay. Same thing. All right. Now, you notice that it's it's uh, defined as something that's part of the uh, history of Arabia. Does everybody know about where Arabia is? I, I see a map over here, the Exodus route. I guess what you need to know is that there's an area there called the Arabian Peninsula. Can you kind of guess which one that is? Looks like a big fang, right? So Arabia is about there. It's it's that place between uh, the Macedonian continent, which kind of includes Israel and all that, and then the African continent. You know, it's it's all it's it's like it's too big to be an isthmus, but it's basically that that kind of bang in the middle there. Um, <laughs> so it, it's all part of something that was referred to as the Fertile Crescent, all right? Yeah. So, so Arabia, by the way, just so you remember then from, from the previous semester, so that's that area around Gaza, Saudi Arabia, northern Egypt, that's Arabia. And the word, uh, I'll try it one more time, Jahililiyah, Jahiliyah is a word that comes right out of the Quran. That is a word that the Quran uses to describe the state of Arab peoples before Muhammad showed up and straightened everybody out. Okay? Hmm. So it's sort of their version of in the beginning, all of creation was a chaos. Well, except that they're actually talking about the condition of things in the 600s. They're, they're talking about, in other words, Islamic history doesn't start where Jewish history starts, where, where Judeo-Christian history starts. Islamic history starts after Christ. It starts, you know, roughly four or five hundred years after Christ. So, interesting observation. So, what the Arab holy book is saying, what the Muslim holy book is saying about the Arab people is, is that before Islam, they were a bunch of wild people, ignorant fighting amongst themselves. It goes on to describe them as being uh, strongly opposed to Allah's ways. Um, they were illiterate. They were animistic. Does anybody know what animistic means? 
worship the animals. They worship the animals, that's right. And they were uh, the disobedient to the laws, they were idolatrous, and uh, you know, the Quran says they were even so cruel that they buried baby girls alive. Mm. Which, just as an aside, um, in Israel, and, and you know, yes, I'm pro-Israel, I'm not going to hide that or try to hide that, in Israel, one of the things that makes me love the people is, is that despite the fact that a lot of Arab people are really opposed to Israel and trying so hard to hurt them, all the baby girls that get abandoned regularly, they're put out like the trash, literally put on the street because the Arab people know that the Jews will pick them up and care for them. This is a common thing in the bigger cities. And they don't want girls. And so if mama's had too many girls, you know, because they need a few girls, you know, got to keep things moving along. I'm going to try to be funny. I'm just saying that they're not stupid. They know they need girls, but they only need a few. They don't. I think some humor is needed here. So this but they, they want a lot. They want a lot of boys, though. And so when they figure they've gotten enough girls, they just start putting them out on the street so that the social workers will come pick them up. And I've visited orphanages in and around Jerusalem that are full of girls. And then they can fight for Israel and, and then whoop the Arabs. And, uh, and also boys and girls with disabilities. Oh. See, children like mine would have just put out on the street left to die. You know. Um, oh, I didn't think about that. I just I thought, thought I'd that. share that with you because this says this is the way it used to yeah, be. Yeah, it's hard. So they still do that today. Today, yeah. It was going on when you were there. Hmm. You just didn't see it. Well, I, so I guess it's uh, unpronounceable words still happening over then. So well, I don't know. I'm not going to try to sorry, to draw I'm a conclusion, sorry, I'm, but I'm I'm just saying. I'm kind of drawing conclusions about what's that. What's fascinating part. is is that the book of the, the Quran, the holy book of Islam, says that this is the way they were before they got their religion. Just saying. That's one of the things. That this is chapter one. You'll read this in the book if you get a copy of this. It's not my opinion. It's right here in the book, and it's, well, this author's opinion, but it's a learned opinion. It's based on scholarly effort and all that. The traditional Muslim view is that this period of Jahiliyyah is around 300 to 600 A.D. Why does it start at 300? Why is it? I don't see for anything all time in the chapter that informs me on that, so I can't yeah. say that I know for sure. Okay. But I think it stems from the fact that they basically, you know, the central figure in Islam is Muhammad, and Muhammad was a real person. Um, you know, he really existed, and he really, you know, has a history independent of what the Quran says about him as well. And so I think what they did was they basically started telling the story of Islam at Muhammad's life, and then they roll the clock back a ways to say, so before Muhammad, this is how it was. And I think that's the gist of it. That's my interpretation of what I've read. When you get your own copy, you can come back and tell me if you read it differently. I would welcome that. I really would. Um, so now we know what that word means, and we know roughly where Arabia is. And what I'd like for you to notice is that there's a correlation between Islam's holy book and our holy book, because they both inform us that those people congregated in an area known as Arabia. Nobody's disputing that. That's central, that's, that's the, the birthing point of this particular people group. And in a way, 
when we talk about Islam, we're also talking about Arab people. And I don't mean to embarrass the ones who didn't go on the trip, but the ones who went, you got a better picture now. There's, there are Arab people, and then there are Arab people who are radically devoted to Islam, right? Mm -hmm. Arab people are a thing in and of themselves, just like there are people groups in America, you know, that, that are based on uh, genealogy and based on geography. It's a little bit of a combination. And so you want to know that in Israel today, there are citizens of the nation of Israel, of, of, of this country, who are Arab people, meaning they descend from that Arabian area. So they're descendants of, of Ishmael, but they're also uh, citizens of that country because when the country became a nation, they said, if you want to join the country, fine, no problem. And the Palestinian Liberation Organization and, and Hezbollah and those guys, they represent the people who said, no way, we're not going to join you. You shouldn't be here. We, you know, and this is where this conflict has continued to exist from the time the country was founded. So, so try to separate in your mind Arabs, Islamists, or Muslims, and then the PLO and, and Hezbollah and stuff like that, because, because they're kind of like three different things in that region. And then you have variants of Islam that we're going to learn about in the next several weeks that explain some of the things you hear about that are coming out of places like like Afghanistan, for example, and Iraq and Iran, okay? So, so just kind of get your mind wrapped around The first lesson is really just a way to say, let's be oriented. Arab people are associated with an area on the map that is generally referred to as Arabia. And Islamic people are almost 100% in their origins, people of Arabian descent. But Islam has spread way beyond that in our day. So there's American Islamic people, you know, there's all kinds now. But back then, and really in that region to this day, it's still fundamentally uh, people descended from certain lineages who are in opposition to other people of other lineages. You know, th th there's that too. Okay. So, uh, what are the main characteristics of Jahil Alal according to the traditional Muslim view? Well, we just talked about it, but for the sake of review, they're, they're wild, unruly, they fight amongst themselves, their life is cheap, they don't care much about uh, your life, but they care about theirs, you know, you know, that kind of thing. All of these characteristics are described in the Quran, and if you get the book, it even gives you the Quran references that tell you that. So I'm not making this up, it's in, it's in the Quran. Um, I don't have a copy of the Quran, but I have a book in my office. This is, this is a funny side story, weird side story, uh, funny weird. While I'm serving a sort of rural church in Delaware County up in north, e northeast Indiana near Muncie, it's rural because it's surrounded by farm fields, but I can see the whole city of Muncie from my back door because it's so darn flat up there. So I'm not really outside of Muncie. I had a Muncie address. And it was just really interesting because one day I opened the church's mailbox and there's this box in there, about, you know, yay big. And inside is a book that is about twice the size of this one. And it has, it says a, like, introduction to Islam and, or a guide through the, a guide to the Quran or something. I'll bring it next week. It's in my office. And it came with a letter that said, you know, we sent this to you, 
And it didn't say me as Pastor Dan or the church as, you know, Corinth United Methodist. It didn't say it. It just said, we sent this to you because we felt that you would benefit from a better understanding of Islam and the Quran, the Holy Book of Islam. And it said a few other things. I saved the letter. It's in the book. I never understood why I got that. But I took it to the leadership meeting and I said, guys, if you want to know why I think it's so important that we focus on the gospel and sharing the gospel with our neighbors, here's proof right here. Somebody's really focusing on spreading the message of Islam in our neighborhood. And we should at least be as diligent in spreading the gospel and so people have a choice. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. So if you want to read something that is sort of a Westerner's Guide to Islam and the Book of Quran, or the Quran, uh, you can look at this thing I have, <coughs> but, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, how do modern Muslim scholars interpret Jahilalau in today's world? Well, let me just advance to that place in the book and see if I can remember what I read. Um, A number of historians and other scholars who study the Middle East accept much of the traditional Muslim view based on the exclusively based exclusively on the Muslim sources. So, so there are scholarly sources that are scholars who, who have used only Muslim sources and then said, yeah, that's about right. That's about how things work. Um, the historians, even those historians, also present, present evidence that it was a much more complex situation in those days and that there were many castes and there were many people groups and that the world was not chaotic, just that people group was chaotic. You know, that, that there was a lot of order and there was, you know, because this also does not acknowledge that Judaism or Christianity were in the mix. Doesn't the Quran doesn't acknowledge that at all, um, you know, which is kind of interesting. The non-Muslim counter view points out that, well, kind of what I just said to you, that the non-traditional scholars argue that this Muslim view is overly simplistic in regard to the picture it paints of Arabic religious groups and practices before the seventh century. They point to evidence that there were some established monotheistic religions already existing in pre-Islamic Arabia. While barbaric practices doubtless did occur, they conclude overall that there were too many different religious elements to accept the story of the tribes wallowing in pagan ignorance and yearning for cultural unity and sophistication. So, in a way, this is the the beginnings of the apologetic, which is a part of this book that you will get in each chapter. Apologetics in the world of Christendom, in, in Christian speaking and so forth, and, and, and more literally interpretation. Apologetic is explaining your case. It's, it, you know, when we think of an apology, you know, we think about how when we were kids, our mom said, tell your brother you're sorry. And you went, yeah, I'm sorry. Not. Right, you know, but apologetics is really stating your case. It's making your case. And that's a better way to interpret it when we talk about matters of, of faith, especially. If you're a good apologist for your faith, it means that you can explain your faith to people. You can explain why you believe what you believe. 
And so this book gives you an apologetic response in each chapter so that you can kind of interpret for your own how you would explain or perhaps help someone say, you know, who believes that what it says in the Quran about the state of affairs in those days is absolutely true. And you could say, well, okay, but historically it doesn't really add up. And I'm just trying to understand how then they could claim it's a matter of faith. You can claim it's a matter of faith. But what we do find is that as time passes, the more historical, archaeological type evidence that arises, the more validated the scriptures of our Bible are, are becoming. It's just consistently, the Bible is becoming a more valid, trustworthy document because it consistently gets reinforced by more knowledge. Whereas the more knowledge you obtain around the Quran, it seems like it more consistently starts to break down. And that's what this guy's argument is. So we'll see where that goes. Um, how does the non-Muslim view counter the traditional view? Well, I think I basically just summed it up. The, the non-Muslim view says there's a lot more going on than the Quran says. The Quran paints a picture of a world that we understand historically. Nobody, not even an Arab scholar, you know, can argue that there weren't complex societal circumstances. The Romans were there. The Greeks were there before them. You know, the, the world was complicated in 300 AD. It was very complicated, and there were people living in all parts of the world, you know, and, and uh, so in order to say that everything was just chaos. So it focuses on the Arab people and says, well, the Arab people were in a state of chaos. And this is really about the redemption of the Arabs. Well, even history seems to refute that by saying that in Arabia, it was more complicated than that. That it wasn't like it was a island or some kind of, of, of a vacuum where there was only pre-Islamic Arab chaos in Arabia and nothing else. And so that, that's the point the author wants us to take away, I believe. And I can take the conversation in better directions when you join me in it. But like I said, you don't have to get the book, but if you do, it'll be easier to talk about this next time because we can talk about what we read instead of me telling you what I read. But for now... How many people know what Zoroastrianism is? Zoroastrianism. Donna probably knows, or she. That's kind of the beginning of what people call the New Age, isn't it? Meditation and being one with the universe. I think so. Um, good. Then you can be I'm going to watch tonight. I don't want anybody to spoil it for me. You have to stay up late. Don't tell me who won. I want to watch and see for myself. So that's right up there with Christian education, you know. Huh? I'm just joking. Never mind. I want to watch Jeopardy tonight. I don't want anybody to tell me what. You know, because it's last night's episode. I haven't seen it yet. Oh. Zoroastrianism is a monotheistic pre-Islamic religion of the ancient Persians founded by Zoroaster. Guess what? In the 6th century BC, according to the teachings of Zoroaster, the supreme god named Ahura Mazda. So that's where Mazda's come from. Who knew? 
created twin spirits, one of which chose truth and light, and the other untruth and darkness. So, there you go. So, I guess if you buy a Mazda, it's either a lemon because it's full of darkness, or it's a good oh, one. Oh, <laughs> oh, that awesome. oh, that's going to truth in you. Uh, you probably know how true that is. Uh, don't honor the, that with the fall. The fall. The mean evil dealership or the uh, <laughs> the good. The Christian dealership told you that good car. The, uh, uh, so the point. The, the point the author wants to understand. The reason I mentioned Zoroastrians is simply to tell you that when you encounter this term, you won't be ignorant when you run into it. That's why I wanted to share it with you. Um, words mean things. Sometimes you know you got to have somebody remind you or help you learn or you look it up like I do. The only reason my vocabulary is what it is is because I just had this habit over the last 40 years or so of looking up every word I didn't understand. And that was a lot harder back in the day when I had to carry a dictionary with me everywhere I went. I did. I literally did. You know, I had a little briefcase and I had my Bible in there. I had a dictionary and all the work stuff I needed. And whenever I would encounter a word in a conversation or anything, I'd look it up. Fun. So most historians and scholars who accept the traditional Muslim view generally agree with the Quran's description of lawless and pagan lifestyle, but the people who do not source uh, Muslim sources exclusively feel that it's far more complex in Arabia in those days and that you, you can't really put your finger on which people group that Quran, the Quran is actually referring to. It speaks in generalization about Arabia, but it's really hard historically to see who they're really talking about. And the reason I mention that, is, and again, this is not a critique of Islam, I guess. I'm not trying to equip you to, to, to hurt people who believe it, or any, I don't mean for anything I say to, to be that. But if I'm going to listen to what they believe and then I try to evaluate it through critical thinking, then my critical thinking informs me that at this point it's safe to assume that the prehistory the Quran carries regarding pre-Muhammad was sort of crafted and imagined in order to set the stage for Muhammad. That's what it appears to be. And that's really the point of this first chapter, is to say, they didn't want him to just say, you know, they wanted to say, in the beginning there was Muhammad. There he is, you know. They wanted to say, in the beginning it was all chaos, and then Muhammad came along and brought this divine truth that he was given to share, and that's why things are better now, you know. Um, there's actually, and this is my own opinion, not based on the book, but, but, but I've known for years, based on just high school history, like classes and things like that, that Arab peoples had some very rich cultures that go back from, from beyond, before Jesus. And that there's a lot of art and and uh, poetry and stuff like that that was knowledge created. and there's a knowledge. lot of stuff that was uh, a lot of uh, astrological knowledge and stuff like that that originated with the Arabs science and so so in a way their own sort of history sort of defies the ones described in lots, lots of lost knowledge on on and on now based on your own well let me let me get through this and then I'll ask this last question. The last few minutes we have. Um, so, the op apologetic points. Let me just look at those. I, I don't think we. I think we've already talked about those. 
building bridges of understanding, you know, what can a Christian do? Um, probably the best thing to do is not to talk to your Islamic friend about what's wrong with their book, but talk to them about what's right with yours. Yeah. Talk about your book and why it means so much to you, and then talk about the things that inform us that it's more trustworthy, and, and yet without saying that in so many words. You just say, you know, there is a there is a story at the beginning of the book that's sort of mythological, and there's no real archaeological evidence to support that, but pretty soon after the, the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and all that, we start to see things described in Scripture in the book of Genesis that there is historical evidence of. So almost as soon as they're cast out of the garden, we begin to see historical evidence of the things the Bible says. So, you know, you start with what you know about your Bible, and if you don't know how to do that, well, hopefully one of the benefits of, of coming to Shiloh and hanging out with places at places like this is you will learn more about how to do that. Um, so the last question I want to ask for our discussion tonight is, I'm just going to ask what seems like an obvious question to me because it's my observation. Have you, in your mostly, I'm sure, limited experience, like my limited experience, what have you seen about people who originated in the Arab region of Arabia what have you seen about Arab peoples that either reminds you of a, 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 a sort of enlightenment that has come as a result of religious beliefs, and what have you seen about Arab peoples that reminds you of Jahil al I'm not probably phrasing the question right, but go ahead. I know. One thing that they are setting themselves up to support their own belief system because they will go in like um, there was this giant Buddha somewhere, yeah. I think in Iraq. It was Afghanistan. Afghanistan. And they destroyed it Yeah. because they didn't want people to know that that had ever existed. Yeah. And... So they're trying and their thing, way. That thing was so old that it would be like somebody blowing up the Sphinx and saying it was okay. I yeah. mean, it was that old and that significant. Yeah, I remember that. And they don't want people to remember what really happened so that they can change the storyline. Yeah. I wouldn't say that to a Muslim, but... All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, to, because I only have a couple of minutes left, and, and, and Courtney may be smaller than I am, but she can take me. <laughs> so if I don't get her choir to her on time, I'm going to end up suffering. I'm just telling you. Um, <laughs> she's my buddy. But um, if you went to Israel, do you remember the first couple of days we were there? I want people to hear you say this. We started out in Tel Aviv, and you saw that mostly in the dark. And then we woke up the next morning in a beautiful coastal town. And then think about Tiberias. And then think about Nazareth. Tell people how Nazareth was different from 
Tiberius, let us say. It appeared they didn't care about their surroundings. In that trash. In Nazareth. Yes, in Nazareth. Yeah. And that's mainly, as I understand, Arab. Yeah. Nazareth, Nazareth is about population of about 60,000 people. And 90% of them are Arab. So when you went into Nazareth, you were just kind of blown away because nobody seemed to care about, you know, what do we see when we drove up the hill to the precipice where we remember Jesus's almost trip over the cliffside, right? Well, isn't that where all the, they were unloading <coughs> trash? Right. We, we saw people Trashy. dumping garbage pick up loads of garbage on the road. That made me sad because that's such a, a historical place for us to think about. It just made me sad to see it. Now tell them about Tiberius. Well, the part I remember was lovely. Right? Yeah, what do you all think? Yeah. At least our hotel and the surroundings. Everything was neat as a pin. Yeah, the Sea of Galilee, the sunrise. And what did you know about the population of Tiberias? I don't know. It was about 90% Jew or Israel, Israel, uh, Israelis rather. But people group wise, you had descendants of of, of people who, you know, there are multiple generations of Israel Israelis there, but there are also um, hundreds of thousands of immigrant people who became there to, to live out their uh, Jewish faith and to live in the nation of Israel. And where those people congregate together, even though some come from Russia, many of them come from Russia. Some come from America, some come from all over Europe, some come from Spain, lots of what they call Sephardic Jews who come from Spain. Um, Sephardic Jews are descendants of the Jews who were pushed out of Spain by the Muslim, uh, back in the, in the uh, Crusader years, they were pushed out of Spain, uh, along with the Catholics, by the way, so the Spanish Inquisition didn't end well for the Catholics either, so. But anyway, um, my point is, is that the Arab peoples who congregate together in the cities that we visited that were predominantly Arab, the cities, Bethlehem, is predominantly Arab. It's in the Palestinian <coughs> territory. It's filthy. It's filthy. This is, these are the cities where the babies get put out on the street. Um, the other thing you notice is that if there's a Christian holy site or a Jewish holy site anywhere, there's going to be a minaret with great huge speakers on it right outside the door. Just saying. <coughs> now, <coughs> I'm not trying to force the conclusion here, but isn't it interesting, based on watching our news, and those of us who are we're all old enough to, to have gathered a lot of news stories over the years about the relations between Israel and Islam, and what conclusions can you draw based on the Quran's description of what kind of people they are. 
Again, I'm not trying to foster prejudice here. I'm not trying in any way to encourage you to, to I, I, when we talk about things that are going to come down with the United Methodist Church this summer, I hope people hear me clearly when I say there's love for everybody and grace for everybody, and we are not in a position to be judges. Amen. doesn't mean we can't say these are the rules we choose to follow and we're going to live by these to the best of our ability. But it does also acknowledge that we are people who were sinners before we were saved by God's grace, and we're still sinners, but we're grace-saved sinners, you know. And, and so my point is, is I don't ever want you to hear Pastor Dan try to encourage you to judge other people just because they happen to be Arabian or Arab people. I don't want you to make those conclusions at all. But when you're trying to understand what you see on the news, when you're trying to understand why Islamic terrorists would destroy towers and take thousands of lives at a time, you've got to be aware of these things. Not because you should then fear everybody you meet whose skin isn't the same color as yours. None of that. Just understand because you can make better conclusions and speak more intelligently with your neighbor if you're informed. And the purpose of this class is to inform you, not to outrage you or cause you to have bad feelings towards people that you don't understand or agree with. So don't ever, please don't ever let Pastor Dan say that to you because that's the last thing I want to do. You know, the last thing we talked about that this morning, Donna, you know. There's certain things I don't ever want to do, and if I get Alzheimer's and I do them anyway, do me a favor and just put me out of my misery. Aww. Because I don't want to be that guy. I, I want to be who I who truly aspire to be, and I don't want you to hear me saying that you should resent or reject Islamic peoples or Arab peoples, but I do want you to understand there's a ton of evidence to support the fact that the Quran itself says Arab people, by their default nature, are what it says. And we've seen in our own experiences, some of us here, evidence that would support that firsthand, close up. Nice people, glad to give you a cup of coffee and have a good conversation with you, but don't think for a minute that they aren't thinking more about that they just made another 50 cents or another dollar and a half or whatever. And again, I'm not saying that every single person you meet is that way, but as a cultural norm, it isn't nearly as much about hospitality with you as it is about you helping them meet their needs. You know what I mean? Whereas... We'd like to think Christians are, are ex ex extravagant with their hospitality because it gives them joy to be like Jesus. You know? I mean, think about it. Any last comments for the good of the cause? Questions? You may speak with me anytime about any of this at a private meeting or whatever. I really happily will... Uh, meet with you if this if this setting makes it hard for you to have complete comprehension of what I'm saying. Of course, you can always go back and listen to the recording and say, oh, he really did say that. <laughs> okay. God bless you, everybody. Have a great week. You honor me by coming and listening to this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. So, Courtney, I got you out of here on time. Thank you.